1: Man, it's good to be here. It's good to hear people singing, exalting Jesus. Uh, I could do that all day. If you've got a Bible, turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, verse 15 through 22. Uh, you're familiar with the story. I want to just set the scene for you. Uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he's appeared to his disciples. And we have this account in John 21 where The disciples, some of them, have gone fishing. Jesus is on the beach area. He's built a charcoal fire. He's cooked breakfast. He invites these disciples to come back in. Peter realizes it's the Lord, throws off uh, all restraint, jumps into the water, swims about 100 yards to where Jesus is. I'm assuming the other disciples may have beaten him there. I don't know if you've ever tried to swim 100 yards, but probably tuckered out there towards the end. Get there, and they have breakfast with Jesus, and then we see this conversation between Jesus and Peter in verse fifteen. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, "Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these?" He said to him, "Yes, Lord. You know that I love you." He said to him, "Feed my lambs." He said to him a second time, "Simon, son of John, do you love me?" He said to him, "Yes, Lord. You know that I love you." He said to him, "Tend my sheep." He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands. And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death... He was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but that if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that this testimony is true. Thanks be to God for his word. I just want to point out a few things in this passage. Now, I'm assuming uh, that many of you, probably most of you, are preparing for ministry, the reality is that God calls some to vocational ministry, but calls all of us people to be engaged in ministry. And I want to talk this morning about our motivation for ministry. Because God's deeply concerned about what you do, but he's also concerned about why you do what you do. As a matter of fact, when Jesus returns, it says that he will reveal the motives of men's heart, and then they'll receive their reward. So Jesus is just as concerned about the motive of what you're doing as to what you're doing. And I want you to see what Jesus is concerned about here in this passage as he is recommissioning Peter, so to speak, to this ministry. We know that Peter denied Jesus three times. Interesting, if you read through the Gospel of John, Peter is sitting around a charcoal fire when he denies Jesus, and it's almost like Jesus recreates the scene for him. Builds a charcoal fire, and three times, just as three, he denied him three times, three times he gives Peter the opportunity to reaffirm his love for the Lord Jesus. And be commissioned into this ministry. But here's a couple things I want you to see. Number one, that Jesus is primarily concerned about our love for him more than our usefulness to him. Jesus is primarily concerned about our love for him more than our usefulness to him. He asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Because really, Peter's denial was not, a bit of, was not about cowardice. It was really about lovelessness, wasn't it? That really what Jesus is getting at here is, Peter, the, what was at the root of you denying me was, that it was a failure to truly love me. So do you love me, Peter? Jesus is coming after his heart. He wants his heart. And see, because that, that's really what sin is about, isn't it? it it's, it's not just the violation of a rule. It's the vandalism of a relationship, isn't it? That he's, he's vandalized this relationship that he had with Jesus. It's not simply that he violated some rule, but he vandalized this relationship. And Jesus is saying, he's restoring this. And he, he's saying, Peter, look, what I'm after is your heart. Do you love me? I mean, do you really love me, Peter? Because that's what I want from you. More than anything else, Peter, I want you to love me. And Peter says, Lord, you know, I love you. And so Jesus is inviting Peter into this repentance, but it's not simply a commitment to better behavior. It is a commitment to a deeper love. Jesus, I want to love you. But oftentimes our focus is on our usefulness to him, isn't it? The success of our ministries, the growth of our ministries, the growth of our church, the visibility of our platform, our increased number of social media followers, our podcast downloads, if you're a pastor here today who preaches on a regular basis we have this constant infatuation with how's our ministry doing are we being successful are we is our platform growing are more and more people becoming aware of how God is at work in and through our our ministries and the reality is it's possible that in your passion to be useful to Jesus you could do ministry without a real love for Jesus did you know that that in your passion to be useful to Jesus, in your passion to be successful in ministry, you could actually do ministry without a real love for Jesus. Revelation 2.4, Jesus confronts the church in Ephesus, and he says, look, you're doing a lot of right things. You don't tolerate false teachers. You're enduring persecution and tribulation and trial, but here's what's gone wrong with you. You don't really love me. You don't love me. Matthew 7, Jesus says there's going to be people... On that last day, who stand before him and say, we, we cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name. We had all this success in ministry. And Jesus is going to say, I, I don't even know you. I don't even know you. See, it's possible for you to be so passionate about successful ministry that you actually do ministry without a real love for Jesus. But he's after our hearts. Now, this is not the first encounter that, G- that Peter has had with Jesus after the resurrection. Scriptures allude to another one, a private one, where Jesus forgave Peter and affirmed his love for Peter and his commitment to him. Now, that's not recorded for us in the Scripture, because there's so, some moments that are so heartbreakingly beautiful, they just defy description. I think that's probably one of them, where Jesus looks Peter in the eye again and tells him, I forgive you. That's not recorded for us. But it's an important moment for Peter because the only thing that will fuel a sustained love for Jesus is indeed his love for you, isn't it? It's a revelation of his love for you. And so Peter has, is not just simply being asked to reaffirm his love for Jesus, but Peter has, had revealed to him the depths of Jesus' love for him. It's the same thing with the Apostle Paul who said, the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's, it's the gospel that really fuels our love for Jesus, isn't it? Seeing him in his greatness and seeing him in his grace that he's the pierced one who was pierced for our sins and he's the preeminent one who has been raised and exalted to the right hand throne of God and the revelation of him stirring our hearts for a love for him. And so what, what Peter has to, has to go back to is the grace of God. And so, so true ministry for Jesus, authentic ministry for Jesus flows out of intimacy with Jesus. Now, God's going to call some of you to some ministries that are seemingly fruitless. You you just need to understand that. He's going to send some of you to some really hard, challenging, difficult places, and they're going to be seemingly fruitless. And it will not be the success, the outward success of your ministry, that fuels your perseverance in the ministry. See, don't look to the results of your ministry to sustain your ministry. It's love for Jesus, it's wonder over Jesus, it's the pierced and preeminent one, seeing him clearly, the depths of his love for you, the the, the immensity of his greatness, it's that love and wonder of Jesus that it will sustain your ministry for Jesus. And so Jesus is primarily concerned about your love for him, even more so than your usefulness To him and it will indeed be your love for him fueled by his love for you that will sustain your ministry through the difficult seasons and seemingly fruitless seasons and so it's important for you for you right now in this college and seminary season of your life for you to develop a devotional life of prayer You, you you cannot underestimate that Listen, I just let me just be real clear and honest with you. I did not cultivate a life of prayer in seminary. And what happens is you take you're developing habits here that you will carry into your ministry. And so, if in seminary you're making great grades but your prayer life has a big D on it, right? You will carry that habit of the neglect of prayer into your ministry. And so while you're in seminary, the most important thing you could do is cultivate a devotional life of prayer. Cultivate a life of prayer. Cultivate the habit of prayer. Because it's in, it's in the, the devotional life of time in the Word of God, reflecting on Jesus, remembering Jesus, rejoicing in Jesus, listening to Jesus fellowshipping with Jesus, experiencing intimacy with Jesus, drawing near to Jesus. It's that devotional life in the Word and in prayer that that will begin to fuel your affections for Jesus. And so make sure that you're not cultivating the habit of neglecting Jesus, even as you learn about Him here in seminary. You have to even now begin to schedule into your life those habits of prayer. I sometimes do a lot of marriage counseling and premarital counseling and uh, one of the sessions you always cover in premarital counseling and even marriage counseling is the issue of intimacy between a husband and a wife, right? And when you're in premarital counseling, you you just imagine that sexual intimacy is something that's just going to be just a regular occurrence in your marriage life, a, a very frequent occurrence in your marriage life. And then something happens, like kids come along right? Schedules get complicated, and all of a sudden you realize that it's not such a common occurrence as you thought it would be. And oftentimes, intimacy in marriage can grow really cold. And in marriage counseling, I often encourage people in the busyness of their lives, look, you have to schedule intimacy into your life. That's not a statement about you don't desire one another. It means I value this relationship so much that we'll actually sit down and say together, we are going to schedule that into our relationship. And usually how that goes is the man and the wife sit down and the husband says, look, i got Monday night through Sunday night wide open, all right? And, and the wife says, I'll give you Tuesday. That's typically kind of how that goes down, all right? But couples who value the relationship enough to say, look, I will, we, we will, we, if, if, if everything's crowding this out of our life, we'll schedule it into our life. I want to say this to you. If you don't schedule prayer into your life, everything else is going to schedule it out of your life. You need to develop the habit of prayer. We're in the middle of an initiative at our church called 302010 where we're just encouraging our people to spend 30 minutes in the morning in the Word and prayer seeking the face of God. 30 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes sometime throughout the day, and 10 minutes before you go to bed at night. Just seek the Lord in prayer. Get into the Word and pray. And what, we're, what people are learning is that you don't develop a heart of prayer and, unless you forge it in the habit of prayer. You need the habit of prayer if you're ever going to cultivate a heart of prayer. Uh, e. Stanley Jones said it this way If you can't pray by the inward click, you got to pray by the outward clock. That you have scheduled times where, look, I meet with the Lord at this time. I, I, I rise early, I meet with him. I carve out some time in the middle of the day, I meet with him. You see this repetitive pattern in Scripture night and day, night and day, night and day, meeting with God. See, Jesus is primarily concerned about your love for him, and that love for him is cultivated in a devotional life of the word and prayer. And so make sure that you're developing that habit of seeking God. Develop that habit of prayer that you might cultivate a heart of prayer. It's, it's, it's that, that heart that prays spontaneously. Pray spontaneously because it's also been praying by schedule. And so if, if, we, if we hear the call of Jesus, right, to come and love Him, love Him, cultivate a heart for Him, make sure that love for Him is the driving motivation of our life. I'm doing this because I love the Lord Jesus, and even when I don't see fruit in my ministry, I see Him. I see Him pierced for me. I see Him risen, exalted, reigning, preeminent, and out of a love for Him and a, out of a loyalty to Him and a devotion to Him and awe and wonder of Him, I press on in this. And so Jesus is primarily concerned with our love for him, even more than our usefulness to him. A.W. Tozer said, the greater this world are those who simply loved God more than others did. It really comes down to a heart aflame with the person of Jesus. Well, I want you to see the second thing. Jesus is secondarily concerned about our love for his people and not their usefulness to us. Now, this is going to get a little painful, so hang on. Jesus says, if you love me, here's what I really want you to do. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to tend to their heart and to their soul. I want you to care for them. I want you to look over their lives. I want you to love and care for that which is precious to me, Jesus says. Now listen, in ministry, it's very easy to become audience-minded instead of people-focused. That We just become aware of an audience that our, our ministry is being done on a stage, whether the stage of social media or the stage on Sunday morning, and we just see the people as an audience. And so we're performing our ministry for this audience, hoping to get a good return from this audience, instead of seeing these uh, people made in the image of God, people for whom Christ died, people, for whom, he, people whom he loves and for whom his heart goes out to to see people the way Jesus sees them. I, I know as a pastor it's very easy for me to be more concerned about the sheep pen than it is about the sheep. Where you begin to see church as a place, and not a people. Church is a place that doles out religious goods and services and captures market share, the consumers in the neighborhood, right? And so to, to be concerned about the look and the style of this place, uh, the visibility of this place, uh, the growth of this place and get more concerned about the sheep pen than the actual sheep themselves. Their spiritual formation, their growth in grace, their growth in godliness. And to be so driven by the success of the place instead of the formation of the people. Jesus says, look, I want you to be concerned primarily for your love for me, not your usefulness to me. And secondarily, I want you to be concerned about your love for people and not their usefulness to you. Because the danger of being driven by success is that it's possible for you to do ministry without a true love for people, isn't it? If you're driven by success, it's possible to do ministry without a great love for Jesus, and it's also possible to do ministry without a great love for his people. You just see them as customers that you grab and keep and who help end up serving the place to keep the place running and to keep it going. But Jesus says, look, love for the people is the key. Not, not their usefulness to you. Let me see if I, can, if I can get real vulnerable with you for a moment about this point. If you lose your love for Jesus and you lo- lose your love for people, all you have left is ambition. It's all you have left. And you might as well just go be a CEO somewhere. And your selfish ambition, your desire for success, your desire for recognition, you'll end up using people to build your ministry and make a name for yourself. When I moved to New York City in 2005, we planted a church in the Upper East Side of Manhattan out of our apartment. We moved there in January of 2005. We didn't know anybody, just parachuted in. By March of 2005, we had had rallied about 11 people through random contacts and random meetings, and we had 11 people, 13 counting my wife and I, sitting in our apartment in Upper East Side of New York. And we said, we're going to plan a church. And that's what we set out to do. And we began to pray and meet together weekly. And by the end of that summer, we had about 50 folks. And we launched a church in an opera theater in the Upper East Side. And it was a lot of work. And I, I remember one day having, uh, I'd sent out an email to a lot of, uh, several of our men. Uh, many of them were, were dads. And I, I'd said, hey, I want to encourage you to, to help us set an example for some of our younger men. Would you commit one Sunday a month to stay late after the service, break down all the gear, load up the van, and shut down shop? And uh, all of them responded except one. And we were having breakfast. There was a whole group of us men meeting together. And I looked at this guy and I said, hey, um, I sent you an email. I didn't hear back from you. Everyone else responded. What's going on? He goes, man, I'm just, you know, thinking about Sundays and how crazy it is. And I'm, I'm just thinking about my wife and kids and how that might complicate things with them. And I looked him right in the eye and I said, are you thinking about your wife and kids or are you hiding behind them? Does that sound loving to you? His whole countenance dropped. The room got quiet. It was like one of those old E.F. Hutton commercials. Everyone in the diner, just, even though they didn't know us, it was like, whoa, is there, is there going to be a fight here? And I totally humiliated that guy and broke his heart. But here, here was what I was saying. Look, this church has to make it. There's a lot of money that had been been contributed to this church plant. My reputation is at stake here. This church has to make it. My whole identity and value and significance was wrapped up in this church making it. And these men were the tools I was going to use to build this church so it would make it. In that moment, I wasn't concerned about his spiritual formation. I was concerned about him making me a successful church planter. I was so driven in those early days by ambition, and it wasn't all the time a godly one. It wasn't all the time a godless one, because I do believe there's gospel ambition. But in that moment, what I cared more about was not loving him, but using him. I need you to work hard if I'm going to be a successful church planter. See, when you lose touch about love for Jesus and love for people, all you have left is selfish ambition, and you will use people to build your ministry instead of using your ministry to build up people. And there's a there's a real contrast when you look at Paul's ministry. When he writes in 1 Thessalonians 2 about his affections for the people. He says, I affectionately, I'm affectionately desirous of you. I'm ready to share our lives with you because you'd become dear to us. We were gentle like you among you like a nursing mother. We exhorted you like a father. We were torn away from you. We wanted to see your face again. Do you see how much he loves the people? How much affection he has for the people? These are not people who are useful to him to help grow his ministry. These are people for whom Christ died that he deeply loves, and his heart is filled with affection for them and passion for them. He says, I'm like a mother to you, like a father to you. I I wanted to see your face. It grieved me to be torn away from you. So this is what Jesus is after, that we would love people like this, now, how do you know? Here's a good question. How do you know when you're more concerned about people's usefulness to you more than your love for them? I think there's a couple of things. You, 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 you criticize more than you celebrate. You criticize more than you celebrate. Instead of seeing evidences of God's grace working among your people, you're just frustrated because they won't get on board. Man, they, they, they won't buy into the vision, right? And you end up criticizing more than you end up celebrating You want people to adopt your vision more than you want them to love and obey Jesus. I remember in in New York, New York's so transient, man. People come in and they leave, and so people would come in for a year and leave, or 18 months and leave, or two years and leave. And so we started casting a vision for longevity in the city. And what we discovered after a while of doing that was we were actually calling people to the city. We felt like we were calling people to the city as much as we were calling people to Jesus, we needed them to stay in the city if this church was going to grow. And so we kept calling them. Instead of saying, hey, look, more than you want to leave this city, you need to want to love and obey Jesus. And more than you want to stay in this city, you need to want to love and obey Jesus. But we were clinging to people, holding on to people like, you can't leave here. Our church is not going to grow. It's not going to make it. Another thing, sometimes we show favoritism to gifted people who can help our church succeed, all in the guise of a strategic use of our time, Right? You show favoritism to gifted people because they can really help you get this thing done. Or we cling to talent that can build our church instead of releasing people to plant a church. We get this temptation of using people instead of loving them. Being concerned about how can they help us succeed more than how do I help them be conformed to the image of Jesus and grow in godliness. How do you fight against that? Well, just like love for Jesus is fueled by a vision of his love for you, I think love for people is fueled by a revelation of Jesus' love for them. These are his sheep that he loved and laid his life down for. And when, you, when God opens your eyes to the depths of Christ's love for these people, he stirs that same love in your heart for these people, that Christ has laid down his life for them. So, so two things. that Jesus is more concerned about your love for him than your usefulness to him. But two, he's secondarily concerned about your love for people rather than their usefulness to you. In other words, the primacy of love, that your ministry would be motivated by love. And here's the dangerous thing about love. Is that sometimes it will take you places you never want it to go. Did you know that? And look what he says to Peter. He says, look. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Man, love for Jesus and love for his people will lead you into some costly, sacrificial, painful experiences. But to know that that's, that's kind of what love is like, isn't it? Love is always suffering love. Love is always sacrificial love. Love is always pierced love, isn't it? Take you beyond your comfort zone, but also take you far beyond your expectations. That's the power of love. And so what Jesus is calling Peter to is, look, I want you to love me. And I want you to love my people. Love me and feed my sheep, tend for my sheep and care for my sheep. And then what does Peter do? He hears that. Well, this is going to be costly. This love's... I'm going to have to take it on the chin here. And then what does he immediately do? He compares himself to John. Hey, Jesus, what about this guy? Right? What about him? Now, I don't know if you've ever walked through the book of John and seen the comparison going on between John and Peter, but they're, they're, like, they're in competition a lot, right? So as John's writing this letter, he refers himself as the one that Jesus loved. And at the resurrection, John and Peter take off towards the tomb. And what does John say? The one whom, the, the one whom Jesus loved, he, he got there first. He didn't step into the tomb, but he got there first. So for all eternity, John wants to know, I beat him, all right? I got there before Peter did. And then he repeats it again in the verse. The one who got there first stopped, Peter looked, and Peter just dashes on in, right? It seems like Peter and John have this kind of competition going on. Peter looks at... Or, Peter looks at Jesus and says, what about about John? What about John? See, here's the litmus test of authentic ministry that's rooted in a love for Jesus and a love for others. Here's the litmus test. Do you compare your ministry and its results to other people's? See, the fruit of love is when you get free from the bondage of comparison." This is not about, is my ministry more successful than someone else's? Is it more flashy? It's, am I faithfully loving Jesus and loving his people? And can I celebrate God's work through other ministries instead of comparing my ministry to theirs? I remember when I was a freshman in college, my, the church I went to in high school, uh, Memorial Baptist Church... Preach my first sermon there, Surrender the ministry there. Uh, my freshman year of college would come back and speak to the student ministry there. Uh, I'm actually, now I'm pastoring that church. It's really uh, kind of full circle. But I remember as a freshman in college going, and my youth minister would bring me in to preach to these students on Sunday morning and every, every couple months. And I would come in and I would preach and I'd preach my heart out. Just preach my guts out. No one would respond. And finally my student minister came to me and said, hey, do you have any friends over there at Dallas Baptist University that might want to come in and preach to our Our students also, I was like, yeah, I've got a friend named Jeff. And so he brings Jeff in. Jeff preaches the most simple, basic, not funny, gospel presentation I've ever heard. I'm like, come on, Jeff, you should have brought your A game. I mean, put my neck on the line here for you. Invite students to respond, 11 kids get saved. And I just broke. I just begin to weep. He calls me up on stage. He's like, man, you see this guy? He loves you. He's been praying for you, and to see you respond to the gospel like this just moves his heart. And that was kind of true. Right? <laughs> that was kind of true. No, I'll tell you what, what else was going on in my heart was, God, how come you didn't use me like that? Because I want God to do his thing. I just want him to do it through me, right? I, 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 want, I want God to do an amazing work, but I want everyone to know that he did it through me. And so comparing my ministry to someone else just created all this jealousy and rivalry and insecurity in me. See, a, c- c- when you start comparing yourself to other people, whether your giftings or your platforms or your abilities, it's an indication that you're being driven by ego and by ambition. It's like John the, they come to John the Baptist and said, Hey, you know, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing more people than you. And what does John say? A man can't receive anything except what heaven gives him. In other words, God sets sovereign limits to my calling, my role, and my reach. I, I can only do what the providence and sovereignty of God appoints me to do. And so I'm not jealous, but I don't compare. In fact, I rejoice that the bridegroom's here. This is his day. This is not about me. It's about, it's about him. There's no ministry envy in John the Baptist. But ministry envy is an ugly thing, isn't it? Ministry envy is despising how God made you and questioning where God has placed you. Peter has to submit to Jesus' will for him and for John and be content and be faithful in that. Say, you know, this is what he's called me to. This is what he's appointed me to do. This is what he has for me. I want to be the best version of me I can be in the midst of this calling but I'm not going to be envious of someone else's calling. I'm not going to compare my calling to their calling. I'm not going to despise how God has made me, and I'm not going to question where God has placed me. I'm going to be faithful in it, even if it means I lose my head or or I'm, I'm crucified upside down. Men and women, listen, you live in the land of comparison, and you'll never know who you are, just who you aren't. And you will hate yourself for who you aren't. This is the, the tragedy of envy in comparison. I mean, are you, are you comfortable in your own skin? Are you content in your own calling? Are you fi- trying to find a way to make your platform larger? Here's a question when it comes down to it. Can you celebrate when someone else is in a season of great favor and outward success when you aren't? One of the questions I have to ask myself all the time to check ego and ambition and do I really love Jesus and love his people is what if God wanted to bring unbelievable awakening and revival to my city and my only part in it was the hidden work of prayer and no one knew about it. Could I be content with that? Could I celebrate that? If my only part was to pray and for God to hear my prayers and answer those prayers through another servant to bring glory to his name and to build his church, could I celebrate that? Or would I find in my heart a bit of envy? I want God to do a great work. I just want him to do it through me. And I want him, everyone to know he did it through me. See, there's a real simplicity to this, isn't it? It's real simple. Jesus is saying to Peter, love me and love people. That's it. And be willing to suffer the consequences of loving me and loving people. And be willing to do that with an understanding that you're to be content with where I've placed you and how I've made you. And give yourself fully to be the best version of you that you can be and faithful to the place that I've placed you. Just love me. And love people. That's just the simplicity to that. The calling is to love Jesus and love people or get out of ministry. Just find something else to do. Find another outlet for your ego and ambition. Because Jesus is in the role of his work. There's just no room for it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you would take a denier and you would pardon him and you would commission him and you would use him and we would still be talking about him 2,000 years later. Thank you that you use broken and flawed people. Thank you that you're able to redeem and rescue and save and cleanse and call. Would you give us the grace to see the depths of your love for us that we might have a heart fueled by love for you. And would you give us the grace to see your people not as tools, but as those made in your image for whom Christ died, we might gladly lay our lives down to serve them and build them up. God, free us from ego and ambition that's constantly comparing ourselves to other people. God, help us to know who we are and to be content with that and to be faithful to who you've called us to be and where you've placed us. Give us the grace to love in such a way that we let our hands be stretched out and give our lives for those for whom you died. We pray it in Jesus' name.
0: Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us.